These are extraordinary times, but with too much information and much of it confusing. On Body Ecology Living, I interview some of the best minds to help you live your best life possible. We'll discuss topics on using foods to heal, on building a hearty immune system, on aging well, on taking care of your gut and, of course, your brain, but most of all, on clarifying the right steps to be happier, healthier, and having the energy to make a difference in your own world. Welcome, everybody, to Body Ecology Living. Today, Sally K. Norton said she'd come on the podcast and talk to us about oxalis, and that's what we're going to be talking about. And this is such a critical subject. Um, if you see how wide-ranging uh, oxalic poisoning is, you'll see that this is something, maybe this is the most important podcast I've ever done. You're eating these oxalates, they're down in the gut, and then of course the gut is connected to the vagus nerve, which is vag- and connected to the brain. So, uh, and they know that the microbiome in the gut is the same as the one in the brain, except there's not as many, there's a lot more in the gut but they're the same in the brain. So you know that oxalates are getting into the brain, even though we can't measure that, we can't see that. Have you seen any tie-in with um, dementia or Alzheimer's, Parkinson's? Oh, absolutely. In fact, there's a, there's a gentleman who did a couple of studies who found that people with Parkinson's disease had the oxalate crystals in this little, uh, tiny little tissue in the middle of the brain associated with Parkinson's disease. They see the oxalates setting up there. There's no question in my mind that all forms of dementia, including Parkinson's disease, can be caused by high oxalate eating. And I saw it in my family. My father-in-law became a Parkinson's patient and was quite out to lunch for his last five years of his life. And he had taken the idea that chocolate was really good for him. So he would get the giant Trader Joe's dark chocolate bar and have that for his nightly dessert for years he did that nights with the caffeine (laughs) yeah yeah he well you know we get these ideas that this is going to be good for us and we'll go for that Mm -hmm. especially something like chocolate that you can just go with it day in and day out and it's no one's warning you that there's the the other side of the coin as you say and I, i have an oxalate example too i have a friend she loves chocolate so much that she um, literally went to Italy to learn how to make it. She was going to go into business. She didn't, but um, she has Parkinson's today, and I, w- I haven't seen her in years, but then I, she doesn't live far from me now, so I went to see her, and she had chocolate everywhere. So soon after I saw her, like later in the afternoon or something, she fell because she has Parkinson's, and she ended up fracturing her hip and ended up in the hospital. So I went to see her, and... I, one of the things I said to her is, Carol, you, you got to get off all this chocolate. Like, it's just awful for you. And she said, oh, I tried that for a whole year. It didn't do anything. My Parkinson's symptoms didn't go away. But also, you know, there's a lot of things wrong with chocolate, but it's addictive. So if you have it today, you're going to want it tomorrow. So it's really hard to get people off of chocolate. I've heard you actually say, don't do that right away. But honestly, I put that up there, the one of the ones to start weaning yourself off of. But so she was in the hospital for like three weeks and then had to have all this physical therapy. But in the hospital, I went to visit her and she had chocolate on the tray and chocolate over in the windowsill in a basket or something like that. So she was no way giving it up. And yet it was killing her literally. But uh, I gave her all the science and all the logic behind it, but she couldn't give it up. So 
that, that's please realize that chocolate's incredibly addictive. It's not easy to give these. No, I up. find this really um, common that people have an addictive relationship with a number of high oxalate foods. Potatoes are a common one. Tea is another one. Chocolate's mm-hmm. one. I was that way with my sweet potatoes. They had been my heroes that allowed me to get off the vegan diet because I couldn't tolerate any grains or wheat, especially wheat and beans anymore. Like I wanted a starch and sweet potatoes was an easy way to have a starch. And that was killing me. I didn't know it. And so I was thinking, you know, when, it, and this is, <laughs> there's so many directions to go with this conversation, but you know, it's hard sometimes yeah. to see that you're benefiting when you get off the foods because you can have this release process where the oxalate levels go back up again and you the symptoms feel the same. So you feel like you're not getting better when you are getting better. And then when you put back that favorite addictive food, you feel a little better because that literally tells the body to stop the clearing process. So the body can only handle so much coming into the blood. And if it's going to come in from the diet, it can't take it and put it in from the body tissue. So the body tissue stop their clean out when you eat them and that temporarily helps you feel better which is wonderful because you don't necessarily want the body clearing it out too fast but then it confuses you and you think and I so I told myself well the kind of oxalates in my sweet potatoes aren't the kind of oxalates that bother me because I can eat them and I don't see a problem so you cannot always correlate the food with the symptoms and that's another reason why it's so hard to fight your way out of this problem because you you're you doubt it, you, you don't have support for it mentally and socially, and then you can't figure it out with the symptoms always, and so you just give up on it, which is tragic. And it's very hard to get over food addictions, and that's why I say, well, start on food you know you're not addicted to. Who's addicted to Swiss chard? Like, okay, you can get rid of that. <laughs> but the gut is really a big deal, because yeah. back in the um, 1840s, you know, they first came up with this diagnos- diagnosis that food, a diet high in oxalate could cause this syndrome called the oxalic acid diathesis. And this diathesis was um, defined as gut problems plus either rheumatism and you know muscle and joint pain and or neurological like mood and personality changes and things like that. You become a little more neurotic. And or? or you would both. have gut both. problems plus one or both of the other. So that was their main way to suspect it. Well, okay, the guys who complaining about obstruction. And the people who were getting sick in the 1840s were people who were using rhubarb for a treat. It was a big fad in, in England in the 1800s and um, up until the early 1900s. It was so important to have rhubarb at holidays and you needed sugar with rhubarb. And so only rich people could afford rhubarb tarts, but they would force it in these greenhouses. They take all that horse poop and take it to the greenhouses around town, the edge of London and produced this rhubarb early so they could have it for a holiday treat. And, and you know, young doctors and so on who have the staff to, to go buy them or to, to produce them in their homes would start having them with their tea every afternoon and then also with their evening meal and eat too much rhubarb and get very sick. And one of the major symptoms reported was obstruction, like a colonic or intestinal blockage. And it was a pseudo obstruction. And what it was is a a muscle spasm clamping down because of the electrolyte disturbance probably causing the complete dysfunction of the gut. So we see this with oxalate, even with the clearing, you get chronic diarrhea or chronic constipation or both because this the spasticity of the muscles, this is one of the major signs of oxalate poisoning because of the electrolyte disturbances 
various types of spasticity. You can get twitches in the eye, twitches in your face. You can get hiccups is another kind of spasticity. And you can get this diarrhea syndrome or the really tough constipation all from this messing up the ecology of your electrolytes and poisoning the nerves and muscles that run these functions. Well, let's talk about the little microbe in the gut that's supposed to be there to, to you know, gobble up these oxalates, but he's not there. So um, that's oxalobacter from Mingenes. And I've been back in the days early, you know, 20 years ago with autism, um, there was actually a man over in, a researcher over in Sweden that had, um, you know, probiotic to put the oxalobacter, but I don't know, something happened and they got into a suit and nothing ever happened. And now there's this company in Gainesville, Florida that is working on this. And like, this has been 20 years. Nobody's come up with a microbe that can eat oxalates. At least oxalates. there's been several companies working on this, lots of different researchers working on this and they can't get it to work and it's some Why? kind of ecology issue the the oxalobacter fermenogies needs some kind of environment that's on they're not able to reproduce with products and that's the thing i mean products are kind of a band-aid in a way because what we really want is nature to do its thing and have its its say but it, the research suggests that some people never really get colonized with oxalobacter, even in childhood, that it's it's from outdoor play that children, young two-year-olds get colonized. And crawling around, like I just some research too, and it, it, you know, it's not in a newborn baby, right. but it seems to colonize in around the time we start crawling. So I started thinking maybe we should go out and Yeah, the between and six months while, and two but... years old is where they expect it by two to be colonized. If it's not by two, it often is not. So in today's world, everything's, you know, polyester or sanitized and, you know, <laughs> it's not, no one's playing in a dirt field anymore when they're six months old. So there's difficulty with that right. colonization and that we've disrupted the whole ecology of the microbiome, as you obviously are quite aware, in that we just, there's no, the soil isn't there to seed this microbe back. Now, it's in my mind, it's sort of a minor problem because the it seems that the main job of oxalobacter is to tell the colon that it can excrete oxalate because it wants to eat it. And it likes the colon to give feed it. So the colon is all about the gardening of the microbe. It likes to put out mucus and different things to sort of garden who grows there. And um, that's one way where there's this back and forth conversation the body says hey i got some oxalates for you Are you ready and the, the stuff is like give it to me give it to me and so it turns on this excretion power and it doesn't require the transporters so you can get the uh, the colon colonic tissue to start excreting oxalate from the blood into the, the fecal area in the colon because these bacteria are there now and from the absorption side the absorption starts within 20 minutes of consumption in the stomach and in the upper small intestine, and the stomach is so acidic that it's a very limited microbiome in the stomach. So you can't prevent mm -hmm. a high oxalate food, like a, especially something blenderized like almond milk and spinach smoothies. You cannot prevent that absorption. So already you're messing with the stomach and you're messing with the bloodstream. It goes straight to the liver and stresses the liver out. You use a lot of glutathione protecting those liver cells after a high oxalate meal. So that almond cookie, the chocolate chip almond cookie, right? It's Everything's got chocolate in it now, is pulling glutathione out of 
all the cells that it encounters because the cells have to use up glutathione to protect itself from the toxic effects of the oxalate. And then it leaves that liver, the oxalate untouched, the liver has no way to do anything about oxalate. It can't transform it or conjugate it or do anything with it. It just, it actually adds more oxalate. So all that inflammatory stress caused by oxalate and other inflammation problems in the body, the liver will be producing its own oxalate as part of its inflamed metabolism. So you get additional oxalate added after it leaves the liver and goes straight up to the heart, which is only this far away from the liver. And then the heart delivers that same blood to the lungs, your poor lungs, back to the heart. So these three critical organs, your liver, your heart, and your lungs are all exposed really before oxalobacter gets its much of a chance at it. it so it's the problem is, is that our system, our, every critical organ, including the kidneys, are adapted to eating a fairly small amount of oxalate. We know about oxalate, it's been in our environment, it's in our physiology, you know, the physiology knows about oxalate. We don't in our heads, but the body, the wise body knows about oxalate, but it's not accustomed to eating spinach and almonds year round. I mean, it's just not, we're not built for that. We're not. Or every not. In every meal, cookies, it's happening in every meal because it's in mm -hmm. potato chips. It's in tater tots and French fries. It's in peanut butter. It's in whole wheat bread, chia seeds, hemp seeds, spices, you know, kiwi, star fruit, pomegranate, black beans. You know, if you like burritos or you like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or if you like potato products, you're getting this as a routine food growing up. You know, I wanted to, I know, start accumulating it your whole life long, but I wanted to get back to the um, oxalobacter from Ingenies. I have a study, which cool. I can send you. Uh, they fed all these mice, uh, you know, ox uh, high oxalate foods, and the more they, so they kept changing the diet and adding more and more and more and more oxalates, and the more that they, the more oxalates they ate, the more oxalobacter formigenes grew to consume those oxalates, and so um, thought it was kind of interesting that um, there was oxalobacter formigenes there. And they fed it more oxalates, so it it grew, more of them came along to eat the oxalates. You see that but, in animal studies so too, it's like in those animal, like the sheep that die and the and the cattle that die. Mm -hmm. If you gradually expose them to little bits of oxalate, they can build a higher tolerance to a point. But there's also research that suggests that oxalate itself is so poisonous even to bacteria that it itself can kill oxalobacter and can can disrupt the microbiome. So mm. oxalate and oxalate crystals are quite disruptive to the gut mic microbiome. So whatever they're doing in the lab with these mice um, may not always play out with us. And there's, there's, this is a very complicated subject to study. There's so many factors. If you think about the genetics and the lifestyle and the age of the person or animal, the type of person and animal it is, and you think about well, just the number of bacteria we're talking about or your ability to produce mucus or like there's so many, you can't begin to truly know that A and B turn to C. Like we have to think in this simple linear way, but the real world is so multidimensional. It's really past our ability to even think about it. So we have to be humble about science reports and know that uh, it doesn't necessarily give us a factoid that's going to help you with your good health. And in the short run, you want to not hurt yourself and you want to improve your health. 
and you know eating a toxin is never going to help you get what you want in life so other bacteria like i've read i've got research showing that a uh, number of bifidus bacteria will consume yes, there are yes there are um, several that will in if it's not mm-hmm. too much i mean it seems to me that the research suggests mm-hmm. at the low level that your body produces oxalate or the low level where we should be eating oxalate that would be a perfect met marriage where you'd have those bacteria but you know there are a lot of things that are affecting the ecology of what's growing there in the in the body and it's impossible to really know because our our knowledge is still preliminary too we're still learning and mm-hmm. need to stay in that humble place of well what we know so far is helping and we need to know a little more and stay curious and and i mean the, the we can have so many endless academic questions and it still draws back to if we're overeating our capacity for oxalate, it's not going to work out well in the long run. And it's better to know about it and live within our biological bounds, regardless of the status of your oxalobacter and your and your various bacilli that can help you with the oxalate. That's great. You want them there. You want that. That's wonderful to have. Unfortunately, it looks like maybe only 30% of us have oxalobacter. And I don't know about how the other bacilli are doing. <laughs> you know, a lactobacillus, um, as I mentioned earlier, lactobacillus, that's a dog, it degrades oxalates. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll take something as careful as I am to avoid foods high in oxalates. You know, I might take a supplement and there's a, an herb in there, Chinese herb or something, and it's high in oxalates. And I start taking it for a couple of days for whatever reason. And, um, I can tell. I start to get the symptom of pain, pain in my eye. So interesting um, that same symptom that it stays your your compass. That it's stayed the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a kind of yeah. a good thing because I can think, recognize oh, it. I'm getting oxygen. If it changed the shoulder pain yeah, exactly. or something else, you wouldn't realize it. <laughs> it. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So it's very consistent. And so what I'll do is start thinking: Now, what am I taking that's different? I've Strongly su- suspect um, Chinese herbs are several of them really have been, been tested. I've never several seen any Chinese herbs, and there some of yeah. them are astronomically high in oxalate. Yeah, oh, they have yeah, been tested. Several tests seen of some Chinese that. herbs are just out of the planet level oxalate, really high. That's what my eye tells me. Well, anyway, what I've learned to do as an antidote. So, if I've you know, first of all, I'm going to stop the, that supplement. But um, if I have somehow taken in like let's say I ate some chocolate and I'm sorry I did that, then what I have found as an antidote is just eating a few few spoonfuls of my fermented vegetables, which might, the way I make them extremely high in lactobacillus acidophilus. Because we put a starter in there and I've sent those off to be analyzed too and they're just way off the charts. Uh, much more, there's much more beneficial bacteria, not of just acidophilus, but all the others too, because they all... You know, they follow acidophilus and they grow also. So it's definitely, you know, that's my antidote, basically. Nice. Do you have an antidote? Like if somebody's uh, eating some nuts and they start to get some symptoms? You usually need you, you know, calcium. See the symptoms. You usually need minerals and calcium can help a lot. Now, you know, it's very individual about when and how and how much, but calcium is a known antidote to oxalate poisoning. And it really does help the body because the calcium is sort of 
in the gut filling in for the bacteria that might be missing because calcium is a magnet to oxalate. So it also tells the gut when it's sitting in the colon because a lot of the calcium you take you don't absorb. The normal absorption rate is about 22%. So you've got 78% of that calcium that you take sitting there in the digestive tract as a magnet working, you know, kind of a, what do, what do you call it? Like the runner up to the bacteria you wish were there. Um, to help the colon and the intestines excrete oxalate out of the body. So it, it's, it also lowers pain and seems to be good for the nerves because the nerves, all cells, but especially nerves and muscle cells need calcium to function properly. So it, it does help a lot in potassium and magnesium, often with the citrate form, even though we don't love the citrate production process, so that it's citric acid really helps the kidneys. It helps to lower the pH of, or, you know, lower the acidity, raise the pH of the body. And it helps to dissolve these crystals or prevent them from becoming aggregates and, and getting bigger. It basically sits on the calcium, on a calcium oxalate crystal and has a stronger magnetic charge between the citric acid and the, the calcium versus the oxalic acid in the calcium. So the, the structure of the, the crystal goes from being that hard quartz-like material to something softer, more like a chalk. And that makes it much easier for the immune system and the body to cope with it. What about zinc citrate? Um, because, you know, you can get zinc as a citrate. So, and also the other thing <clears throat> I wonder about is that if you're taking calcium all the time, uh, does that throw off your magnesium balance? Because magnesium citrate is really mostly a laxative. Right. Um, well, I, we almost always anyway, so try to get people to take them both um, in whatever ratio works for their colon, <laughs> like, you know, and, and have them. It's mm -hmm. a pretty safe way to medicate your symptoms to use these minerals. The body really, if, it, if, it, if they're abundant and if, all of, if you have all of the minerals you need, the body can generally work it out. But if you're really short on some critical ones, and sometimes it's hard to tell which ones. So I like to see people using trace minerals because the, the major devastation of oxalate is not just chronic inflammation that causes all kinds of inflammatory illnesses and autoimmune problems, but this chronic devastation of your mineral status that creates this low-grade deficiency. And this deficiency, toxicity, inflammation combination is deadly. And that's really where you end up. Yeah, I, uh, I ultimately probably can, don't want to rely on these supplements, the calcium, magnesium, citrate. You want to take the high oxide foods out of your diet. And I know a lot of people say, you know, wean off of them slowly, but, and, or you'll have this oxalate dumping. So we could probably talk about that, but I never did that. I just uh, literally avoided all the high oxide foods. And I've told people for years that body ecology is a, we recommend plants, of course, but um, definitely. Uh, be very mindful of the uh, oxalates that you're consuming. Uh, that's probably the first time a lot of people ever heard of oxalates. But, you know, yeast are making oxalates too, yeast and mold. And people are eating bone broth, which has a lot of glycine in it. And they think that's really good and healthy and good for the bones. And, and also vitamin D. Bring that up too. But, oh, yeah, vitamin C. I used to get these vitamin C uh, these Myers cocktail drips, IV drips, and they would always put, I think, 50 or grams or something. I don't know exactly. Yeah, of the vitamin C in there. And always, the, afterwards, the next day, my eye burned. So um, then I learned about the vitamin C. So I just say, don't put 
not don't put it in my uh, uh, if I get a an IV of any kind, don't put vitamin C in it. So, and glutathione sounds like it's a really good thing to put. It does. In a drip. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I've been there too. I did the vitamin C IVs to try to get over my supposed mercury problems and all that, and I ended up mm-hmm. breaking a needle. Like after a while, the crystals had been forming in these veins. They've been shooting up with the IV needle. And at one point along the way, maybe the 12th one, the needle snapped in two. It, it wow, must have hit a amazing. crystal that was embedded in fibrosis. And it was so solidly embedded in fibrosis, it didn't move. And it was harder than the needle inside my vein. Snapped in two. And my wow. veins turned That's very ropey and rolly and fibrotic from all that vitamin C. It, it really messed up my veins for a while. Mm. They became hard to hard to puncture and then they recovered from that it took you know maybe a year and a half and they got to be puncturable again but for a while there i was warning all the phlebotomists please be careful because you're going to miss because they're going to roll away from you and they'd be tricky and then then i started warning them they're like no it was easy oh okay it took me a while to put that all together like um, these things happen to you when you have no idea why you broke the needle no idea why your veins are getting stiff and weird and t- you're turning to grizzle. You just these things start happening, and no one can clue you in because we never suspect vitamin C or collagen or spinach and almonds from being a suspect in a crime called your ruined health. So, so let's talk about yeast, um, how they are playing a role, and then I'd like to also then talk about fat because. Um, Fat can be a problem, and then fat cannot be a problem. So let's talk about those two things. Uh, so the biggest, the biggest producer of oxalate that we can get in trouble with is something called aspergillus or aspergillus, and this is a a mold that you can mold. breathe in and it can set up shop in your lung. Some people can get um, problems with it setting up in their colon or other places, and that is a oxalate producer. Um, can be a big problem. Candida, there's, I've never seen anybody in the various oxalate experts who study these things talk about candida and yeast. Candida has many nasty, tricky ways of being toxic. It's, it can become filamentous and it changes all its forms and it adjusts to the environment and can hang on. And what I've seen with my clients is that they have decades of mucousy, nasty infections that eventually disappear. Uh, sometimes it takes a couple of years on a low oxalate diet, but they just start shedding these infections and they go away. The yeast infections, people with, I used to have chronic sinus problems. And once I went on the diet, I never had another sinus infection again. And it, it only took mm. a month on the diet and I didn't get my usual New Year's Eve sinus infection that I got every year since I was 17. When I turned, I was 49. I first First Christmas and New Year's, I didn't have a sinus infection since I was 17 <laughs> and has never had one since. Um, and we see this where the chronic yeast infections and stuff go away. And I really think the, um, the toxic ecology where you sort of have acidic metabolism and you have struggling immune cells and a struggling gut wall and the barrier function isn't good, you are so vulnerable to these infections when you've got... You've got less mucus, you've got more barrier holes, you've got acidity, you've got stressed out immune cells, you're a sitting Petri dish waiting for infection. And once you get rid of this toxicity, your body can pick out the nasties. And so I think the yeast is more of a symptom of oxalate poisoning than the other way around. 
because that's how it plays out mm, both in the science and in real life. So it's cool because <laughs> you mm. don't have to keep taking these antifungals. Most of my clients have been taking every possible natural and medicalized antifungal and nothing is working. Mm. And then they stop taking all that. They go on the diet. And two years later, they're like, I'm clean. I'm fine. I don't have any of this anymore. That's, I just love that. Like, my God, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, this is so very, very basic to know about um, fats, though, because you won't find oxides a problem in your fats, but fat can bind calcium, and then the calcium isn't going to be there to get rid of the oxides in the gut. So, could you just kind of just talk about that a little right, bit more? Right. Right. So, that? first of all, when you're eating fats, fats are low oxalate the fats you know it could be from a peanut it could be peanut oil not that you'd want to eat that it could be from an almond or whatever any kind of high oxalate food you use its fat even olives are fairly high in oxalate but olive oil has no oxalate because oxalic acid is this crystalline acid which is in the water part and it you know like salad dressing will separate where the oil's on top and you pour off the oil and you leave all the oxalate behind so it's a type of refinement where fats do not hold oxalate interestingly though little morsel from the literature that's that's hard to find because it's only mentioned a few times in the liver and other tissues oxalate can form lipid crystals so oxalate in physiology can get caught up in the lipid fraction of the body and that's another reason why you can't find it in the body because you cannot detect that in any way shape or form but dietarily mm -hmm. we're relying on the calcium in our foods to lower the amount of oxalate that can get into the bloodstream that's why the low dairy or the zero dairy diet puts you in harm's way with oxalate because without all the calcium in your dairy because modern people that's their only real source of calcium uh, unless you're eating fish bones every day there's very little high high calcium foods so you remove dairy because your poor gut can't handle it which is a perfectly reasonable choice but now you don't have the calcium in those foods and so your absorption rate is probably twice as much so Almost that'll double the amount of oxalate that can get into your bloodstream when you go low dairy. So you, what little calcium you have can get bound up with fat. If your bile and your lipase and if your gallbladder and pancreas are struggling with fat digestion, if you're not able to break down those fats, those fats will ball up with the calcium and make sort of a soapy material. So that's devastating your calcium in your gut. Like nothing is there to bind it. So yeah, so sometimes you need to really control your fats, use things like egg yolks that are emulsified that can do the work that bile would do for you. You may have oxalate sludge in the, the, the duct of the gallbladder. So that's maybe why you can't digest these fats because oxalate has been caught up in the gallbladder. It would make sense if the liver is the first tissue that you're flooding after every almond bar, that the gallbladder would end up full of oxalate. So this also can be a thing where your gallbladder becomes worse in the beginning of the diet because it starts to try to clean up and it's sort of on, you know, gone to the spa, as I say, to have its hair done. You know, like it's off, it's taken a day off or a week or a month or six months off from what it really needs to do is make your bile and help you digest things and excrete toxins. And you can lose, it can become wobble. Your ability to handle fats can wobble. So sometimes you gotta be really aware of 
fats that are easy to digest. If you can do egg yolks, that's good. If you can use coconut oil, that's pretty easily digested, you know, but you might not be able to handle a nice big fatty rib or something really greasy for a while, but it'll come back. It'll come back. So if you go on the internet and you type in oxalates, the thing that comes up over and over are kidney stones. It's like they're fixated on kidney stones, but what you just said is the gallbladder can have these stones as well. And also, the other thing that's very frustrating to me, uh, especially years ago, because, uh, of course, I'm looking for a list somewhere, a good list that identifies the foods that are high in oxalates and the ones that are low. And these, you know, people, these different universities and all the kidney people, they they don't agree with each other. So this one might be high. This one is not high over here. And so it's super confusing. I read about a research study done in New Zealand on pecans, and they were very, very low because of the soil that they were grown in, where, you know, sometimes pecans give me an eye ache. My eyes start to hurt, and also depends on how many. If I, I love pecans. grew up with a pecan tree in my backyard in Georgia, but I, I could overeat on them too, so quantity. So could, let's just run with that a little bit, um, the, the totally confusing oxalate list. And so I'm going to once again recommend to people buy Sally's book. You'll probably get the most accurate information there. There's a couple other places. Well, and why not buy the I've book? been working on an oxalate database for three years, and we're, we're going to have an oxalate data product available on my website sometime hopefully before the end of 2022, because hopefully we'll get more and more people seeing that they need to understand where oxalates are. Now, yeah, because the book comes out yeah, in December. December 27th, it should be in your hands. 22. I've already ordered it. <laughs> so the, it's, there's lots of angles to the problem with the oxalate data. Lots of mishandling of numbers going on. Lots of mistakes everywhere. You open up a nursing textbook and they have a two-page list in the nursing textbook and eight items that are say they're high oxalate aren't high oxalate. And they're missing like really critical food. Like it's a terrible list that, that, that your health professionals have mm -hmm. in their textbooks are awful. And then there's food itself. Okay, now, if you're a mother of eight children, you know you haven't produced eight identical children. Each one has different interests, different personality, different body size, different hair texture, you name it. There could be tremendous diversity. They came from the same parents. Siblings have the closest genetics of anything, and yet the diversity in my, my father marveled at how different his five children are. <laughs> Same with a leaf of spinach, you know, or a strawberry. Mm -hmm. Strawberry and green beans, they just naturally vary. There's lots of different species of strawberries, lots of different species of green beans. If you open a seed catalog, there's like 50 choices of green bean seeds. And then they grow in different years with different degrees of humidity and stress and different degrees of pesticides and different degrees of warmth and sunshine and soil really affects these things. So the tomato, if the tomato is grown in high calcium soils with high humidity, it will have higher oxalates and it'll have so much oxalates maybe it'll get crystals of oxalates under its skin which makes it not very salable because the, the tomato starts breaking down because the crystals of oxalate so there's lots of environmental factors that will affect a plant and its production how much oxalate it needs to survive 
will depend on conditions. So the plants are responding to their environmental conditions and to their genetics and all these things. So you can't expect, like spinach is the most tested food of all. And there's quite a big range in spinach testing. And I'm saying that per 100 milligrams, call it a thousand. Like you, at some point you need a referee that says, well, let's give it a number if we need to use numbers. But numbers are there as a general guide. But it would be nice if we could decide which foods are really high in oxalate and get it right and which foods are really low. We can do that. We have enough data for that generally for the, like the basic foods. We do need more testing though. And so you can't rely totally on these lists. Most of them are terrible. They're just going to make you crazy. And it's more like learn the key things. So just the, my beginner's guide has the high oxalate foods, the low oxalate foods. Just learn, you can trust these ones that have been tested a lot as low oxalate. You can incorporate them into your diet according to your diet needs. Now everyone has their own ways of customizing for lots of really legitimate reasons. That's fine. You can customize low oxalate however you need to. And be aware of the high oxalate foods and really get serious about how to really reduce them and eliminate major ones. Like you don't ever really need Swiss chard. I promise you a life without Swiss chard is still a life well lived. Oh yeah. There's plenty <laughs> of other things. Um, so uh, that's one myth I'd like to clear up. I can't tell you the number of people that have said to me, Oh, kale is so high. I don't touch kale. And yet kale's fine, especially the less than not to the, the flatter one, the curlier one has a little right. bit more oxalates in it, but, and then there's cabbage and uh, that whole family, which we really do need. I'm curious about arugula. Is that on your list? That's in I've the heard cabbage both, family. That's another slow. cabbage vegetable. And that whole family, that whole yeah, family so it's is slow. slow. All the lettuces are low. The, now, some cabbages are higher than others. Your green head cabbage is the lowest. Red head is a little more. Chinese cabbage has a little more. The green curly kale has, has mm. a little more. And the, the dino lactinato, you know, the tough, leathery, dark one is really low. Mm -hmm. So, you know, mm -hmm. but it's all in this little range over here. Spinach, if this is a bar graph, spinach would be this long and kale would be this long. They're, they're not on the same level at all. The difference is, you know one one hundredth of the amount of oxalates mm -hmm, or a tenth mm -hmm. anyway no one one hundredth of the amount of oxalate in kale all the kales compared to spinach so we don't need to the, somehow in our culture kale got a whole street on madison avenue to promote it and since spinach is up there revered and the two of them are these revered greens they're always spoken like siamese twins kale and spinach like it's the same thing so in our head if spinach is bad kale mm -hmm. is bad kale is the favorite vegetable to hate because it's like, you know, it really isn't that great. It's kind of leathery and fibrous and it's like, you know, as a culinary experience, I wouldn't put it at the top, you know. <laughs> so people like to make fun of kale. Well, you know, and when you hear that a vegetable could be bad for you, everyone wants to make kale. The, <laughs> it's so weird. I don't know. Well, you know, you have yeah. to cook it because for somebody who recommends clonics, I've seen many, many like I've lectured at the colon therapy associations and everything, and I know lots of them. And they, uh, if they're done properly and with a view to that type of clonic, you can actually see what's coming out of people. And it, very interestingly, that uh, in that view tube, if someone's eating a lot of tox uh, oxalates, they have sand going across the bottom, and it's in the toilet. So that was that's an important clue right there. Um, but also um, kale and these dark green leafy greens, they don't really, they're not good raw. And you literally see them in a clonic that they didn't get mm -hmm. digested at all. Arugula, however, is a really good, even though it's kind of tough to chew it, 
it digests well and it and it does well in a clonic um but also it's a great source of sulforaphane so i i would like for people to know that if they read it on the list that arugula is okay yep. um yeah so obviously they, so i mean for people uh, please buy the book everybody but this is such critical information to know and sally i know what it takes to write a book and i know this is a really good book to to, to have and read and share and take to your practitioner. It shocks me that the number of practitioners out there are clueless about this topic. I don't know why they're clueless. There, you know, there's uh, all the information in autism, Julie Matthews, myself, you know, and Sally's been doing it for a long time. There's, we're trying to get the word out, but for some reason there's this, you know, screen going up and people don't have it. So take it to your practitioner and, and then also do it yourself. So uh, I think it's fine to just start off with the, taking all the high oxalate foods on your list, Sally, and then cut those out because I don't. I've never seen anybody have dumping problems by doing that. Now, if they got too strict, maybe. But uh, what do you can you well, say something about dumping? You know, and we don't have do, yeah. the resources and and the brain power interested in this topic. So we we haven't taken. 500 people and put them on the diet and try these different ways of engaging the diet and, and really having any way to identify who needs to go slow and who can just go for it. Um, you know, I see a lot of people, you know, I've become the specialist who consults with people who come to me having self-identified as having poisoned themselves with oxalate and how to deal with it. And I get all these stories mm -hmm. from different people and I believe people. I, I don't ever say you're wrong and I know more than you do. Whatever they tell me, I believe because I'm humbly learning from the literature and from them and, and matching the two side by side and seeing how the literature shows they're right. But we haven't, there is no literature about putting people on this diet. The kidney stone world has sucked up all the, all the interest that we have from our funding agencies to study oxalate. And it's always about the kidney stone. And the mm, kidney sure. literature continues to pretend that we don't know what causes a kidney stone. That's a game they have to play. Otherwise, how would they continue to get funded? You have to keep your disease alive. You can't kill off your disease by knowing too much. So there's no incentive to, yeah, there's no incentive cancer. to get outside the kidneys because each little circle of funding or, or research is its own club. And you don't want to hand over the kidney dollars to the immune system people or to the this people or some other group mm -hmm. of researchers. And there's a lot of researchers now and limited funding. Only 10% of, of applicants get their funding for their research grant. Your career, your status at the university, your tenure depends on you paying for some of your salary with research grants. So it's a very competitive situation with research. Exactly. So we're not anytime soon going to get a lot of help figuring out who can go cold turkey and who should take it easy. Um, so it's, a lot of it is your constitution. If you, if you like to dabble around, fine. You, you know, just get serious enough so that you're systematically learning how to eat other things and getting out of your bad habits. And for some people, changing your habits takes a few months or even a couple of years. It's okay. You know, work with yourself as a human being. But if you really want to go fast, you can do that. But be aware that as close as up as maybe five days, you could suddenly have some weird stuff happening, like a sudden rash or a sudden eye sty or some unhappy night or some anger mm -hmm. attack or something you know if you have a bad night's mm -hmm. sleep and you're really 
weird mentally the next day. This could be suddenly an oxalate rise because your body's already releasing it. I've had people come to me who went full carnivore, which is a zero plant diet for three years. And then all of a sudden were really, really sick from oxalates suddenly pouring out of their system and disabled and couldn't work. So mm -hmm. some people, they feel it in five days. Some people never really notice any oxalate clearing symptoms. My husband, I gave him carpal tunnel and sleep disorder and neck pain and wrist pain by feeding him sweet potatoes and Swiss chard. And he liked his French fries and black bean burritos. And that combination ruined him. And I had no idea that it was diet related. Of course, we would have done something about it. That was always my goal to eat for health. And his, his clearing symptoms were um, sometimes like you're saying, when you go back and you eat the chocolate or something, the eye pain came. For him, he would have a bad night's sleep and then a mood shift. But he would also, when he was being consistent, he would get hip pain on and off. And I think some of that is the inflammation that require, is required for removing oxalate from tissues. Tooth pain is common. There's a lot of symptoms that can occur as your body's releasing them because it takes a lot of work to do. But yeah, I wish we really knew how to correctly advise people about the adoption of the diet. But clearly... I would prefer you do something that you can maintain and you get support that you need and you keep dipping back into a community that understands oxalate and don't get too, too diluted by the, the mass hysteria that you've got to have spinach and almonds and got to be keto or got to be this or that. Please don't sign up for some mm -hmm. tribe that really isn't devoted to your health. Sign up to your own tribe <laughs> and be devoted to an yeah. You know the saying of, and functional medicine is saying in of one. So research isn't going to, it's you, right. you're unique and you want to experiment on your own body. I've personally found, because I've been, you know, immediately identifying oxalates in people's all the nuts and seeds and everything they're eating um, to take them off of it. But they're also eating fermented vegetables. And so when they, um, the vegetables are in the gut and they are credible for, uh, you know, eating oxalates. So if you're having dumping, they're going to eat it. So I really haven't found dumping to be an issue, but I read it about all the time, read, read about dumping all the time. Um, so let's, last thing, and then I'll let you go, nuts and seeds, because that's the other huge thing that people are eating besides almonds and almond milk, all these other nuts and seeds, and some of them are fine to eat. So can we just at least tell people the worst, besides almonds, of course, uh, chia seeds, yeah, right. yeah. Uh, but flax are low. Flax so, are low. so people can have some. Pumpkin um, seeds are low. Which flax ones? are low. Sunflower seeds are not terrible. Um, but most of the other seeds are pretty bad. Uh, pecans and walnuts? Pecans and walnuts have, you know, quantitatively, probably a third of what the almonds have. And... You know, it's not always the amount, it's the bioavailability. And they haven't tested, you know, there isn't enough research to say confidently. We do know that peanuts have high availability, as do cashews and almonds, where that means that a lot of the oxalic acid gets into your bloodstream and starts messing up your body internally. It's not just the, the damage that's happening in the mouth and the intestines and the rectum and all of that. It's the stuff that's getting into your body. That's the absorption, the bioavailability piece. And we see it's very high with peanuts and peanuts are only a little bit higher or in the same range as pecans and, and um, walnuts. Now, I think 
it would be good to move from almonds and use walnuts for a while. If you need a step-down approach, using some of those other nuts, be nice if they were not moldy. Because, you know, aspergillus mm -hmm. growing on moldy foods is oxalate. So that's going to affect your oxalate mm -hmm. level in things like nuts. Um, pistachios are prone to mold. Wheat is prone to mold, you know. And so that's another reason why plants, the content of the oxalate in these foods can vary if there's been mold contamination, which is very hard to absorb, uh, to avoid because the, the nuts fall on the ground and they shake them out of the trees, especially with the almond. They just shake those poor trees. They lay on the ground and they get picked up by this big machine that pulls up soil full of soil organisms and soil mold. And then they sit in these piles and mold just sits there in the hot California sun growing under tarps you know so the tarps hold in the moisture so there's yeah. lots of things with the nuts and, and not people good are because fine they're mold contaminated they really have phytates and lectins and other problems so they can be i find that even the most uh, well soaked and handled um, um pumpkin seed bothers my digestion so i don't touch this nuts and seeds or things with seeds because my my poor gut has had it it's really sensitive yeah, it is hard in the gut. It's hard in digestion. You really have to chew them. Or to I mean, death. even I would uh, use them as them. butter, like pumpkin butter, because the pumpkin seed butter is a nice substitute for tahini, and you can make, you know, like Middle Eastern style foods and do all kinds of things with pumpkin seed butter. It's a little pricey, but it it works really well um, in the same way that other seed butters do. So if there's certain sauces or recipes that are like that's a nice substitute. But for me, even that doesn't really agree with me. So. Well, you know, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that because I called Sun Butter, mm -hmm. Organic Sun Butter. They have had their uh, Sun Butter tested and it is low oxalates because that's one the autism kids can use. Um, so I just want to bring that up. But um, again, you could put that in your smoothie. Especially if it's been, you, don't you know, so a whole lot of it. low in phytates and all those other things that can be a little hard on the gut. Mm -hmm. Gut, poor gut. It's just struggling. But they're meant to be eaten in tiny little quantities, mm -hmm. like a teaspoon of the gut sun butter, because we would have found them in long ago. We would have found them, you know, dropped on the ground in their shell. So we don't really have the ability to, like, crack them with our teeth and anything. So you wouldn't have eaten a lot of them. If you did find some, you would be happy to get the fat through the winter. And so you, um, mm -hmm. you would save them. You maybe eat five or six or something. So we're eating way too much of them. You know, get a whole package and they haven't been soaked and people eat handfuls yeah. of them for, I just, that's one of the worst offenders I have found in people. Turning seeds into an entree. So, you know, like uh, I haven't had time for dinner. I'll grab this thing at the convenience store, this big tube of seeds exactly. and, and not yeah. be hungry. <laughs> so, yeah, totally. So that's, uh, <laughs> so the thing is, everybody it sounds like we've told you um all the bad things about oxalates but it sounds like what's left to eat but there's a ton of good healthy things left to eat it's not like you're gonna really be a, a mess you can definitely start to identify the foods that are uh, lower in oxalate or at least medium oxalate start weaning yourself off of the high oxalate ones i would say eat fermented vegetables to help them so the microbes will you know help you digest the or eat, they'll eat up the most fermented vegetables are things like cabbage which are very low in oxalate to begin with you can't really ferment away yeah. a high oxalate and, and food like poi and these classically high you can't really if you reduce the oxalates by a third and you're down from a thousand to 700 or 500 even yeah. 
it's still too much oxalate. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. any fermented vegetable that's made from a low ox vegetable is really wonderful. It's so much more digestible and is so mm-hmm. supportive of this, you know, diversity that we want to continue to have in the gut. So there are foods to eat. You know, the peas my- are better than the beans. So you can do black eyed peas and chickpeas and green peas, right? Oh, yeah. So there's some bean substitutes mm-hmm. for people yeah. who want more of that kind of proteins or those kinds of foods. If they love bean soup or something, it doesn't mean you can never have it. You just have to make it with pe- black eyed peas or something. And I have a recipe. There's mm-hmm. a bonus exactly. gift, what by about, the way, if you um, pre-order the book, you come to my website and you get a little 12 recipe um, cookbook that has like a bean soup for people who want to, you know, made with black eyed peas. And so it gives you a sense for how to start switching over. Yeah, being from Georgia, I love black eyed peas, lady peas, things like that. So that's they're the ones I would eat. But they are a five. Yeah, they're, they're not for everybody. <laughs> what about chickpeas? Because you know, uh, to me, that's one of the worst foods. You've got your chickpeas, which have also got sesame tahini, super high in oxalates, and uh, hummus, people yeah. got hummus. You know, um, it's terrible. You food can make hummus so using the. I'm sorry. The, um, pumpkin seed butter and you can use cauliflower and you can use lots of, I mean, hummus is basically pureed stuff and, you know, throw a little garlic and olive oil and you can get that same experience. It doesn't have to be with sesame. And you can, if you want the sesame flavor, sesame oil has the flavor without the oxalate. So a couple drops of oil might give you a little culinary variety. You can do that with cumin. You can use curcumin extract instead of whole root turmeric which is so there's lots of ways we can still have the flavors of these foods and culinarily you know kind of um, if you're into like imitating your old diet if you want to just move forward and love different things that's sometimes simpler you don't have to spend so much time wondering how to recreate things did you mention turmeric yes super super high high. but if you get curcumin that's not Curcumin extract from whole turmeric root is yeah, really, yeah, really yeah. high. I don't recommend it. But if you want the flavor of turmeric, you can buy the curcumin extract and use that. Yeah, and that's important because people are checking a lot of cur- curcumin right now. Uh, turmeric, turmeric, unfortunately, like the whole root is supposed to be better. So you can things. buy it in like quart jugs and gallon containers at Costco. <laughs> overdoing it. We're yeah. really overdoing nuts, seeds, chocolate, turmeric, beets, like crazy. Yeah. So Sally, thank you very much. I hope people seriously listen to this several times. I hope they go to soon to buy the book, even though right this moment it's not out yet, but go ahead and get, it'll be shipped to you on December 27th and you on uh, 22. And then you had mentioned that you even did an audio book. So the problem with an audio book, which I think I, I'm ordering both of course, but um, I, like I can't get enough of this, so I'm definitely going to get both. But the problem is, is that you've got important tables in the book, and uh, you know these you can't get those. Can't remember that in an audio. There book. is a so PDF I that will come getting with both. the audio book, but it's really hard. But if you're reading along, um, people like to have the physical book and have the book be read to them. They can up the speed and read it along. There's lots of ways that sometimes having both works for people or review it in the car as you're driving cross country. So that can be a lot of people yes, want to yes, have yes, it both. And that, this is a topic where you need to immerse yourself. You need to hear it over and over again. And so maybe the audiobook will help you remind yeah. you of stuff you read in the book. So that's a good idea really exactly. to have both. And, and I'm just so honored yeah, that and you, you can get Kindle on this path so long and to be able to be with you, Donna, it's just a beautiful experience to come together as people who are trying to help people discover this. Thank you.
and you have a good publisher and they're going to probably promote the hell out of this book and thank God because I'm so sick and tired of people knowing nothing about this topic, Sally. So thank you for being on here. But for all the work you have done over the years, uh, helping people, but also then putting it all into this book. So I can't thank you enough for taking all this time to, to do this podcast with us. Thank you. Body ecology is not a diet. It's a way of life based on seven universal laws that always guide us toward the truth. If you want to know more about us, about these seven universal laws, and about our amazing, effective products, go to our website, bodyecology.com. Also, for a free transcript of this show, go to our website. Again, that's bodyecology.com. And of course, if you like what you're learning, we'd be very grateful for a review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've got a topic you want to learn about, just let us know. This information does not replace the advice of your doctor or healthcare professional. Thank you very much for listening. And here's to a happier, healthier world.